Good morning. <laughs> it's good to see you guys this morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I have just a few announcements. Um, we're just highlighting the global week of prayer that's coming up. That's February 26th through March 4th. That's today. <laughs> I know what day it is. So that starts today, the Global Week of Prayer. You will be able to find some information in the foyer. I believe there's a QR code. We also will have some stuff up on the website that you can look at. That should go live later today. So you'll be able to look through all of those prompts. You can also download it from the Nazarene website. It's really awesome. It's through the uh, NMI, so it's going to have a lot of missions-focused prayers that you guys will be able to do. If you have questions, you can ask Dan. Just threw that out to you. And I just wanted to let you guys know that if you weren't able to make it to the girls' night this past week, I can't believe that was this week, Tuesday, um, but you are interested in signing up for a monthly women's group, these are small groups, they'll be meeting in homes or restaurants. So it's a really good opportunity to connect and just form a community with the ladies in this church. Um, that's what we're called to do as believers. We, we believe that. We want to make as many opportunities for you as possible. So if you're interested, there is a sheet in the foyer. And if you have questions, you can talk to Kathy. Just keep your distance. Or you can talk to Trisha. So I think that's all we got. Wow, that was, that was good, you guys. All right, I'm just going to pray if you want to stand with me. And I know I am going to turn this light off. Just the mood. So we can focus on the presence of the Lord this morning. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather in your house with our brothers and sisters, Lord, to worship together as one voice. God, it's such a privilege and an honor to be able to do that. So we just thank you for those of us who are not able to be here because they aren't feeling well or for whatever reason, God, just ask that you would bless them in a special way this morning, that they would feel your presence right where they are at home or wherever they are, God, those of us who are here, who are sick or are fighting something off, Lord, just pray that you would bring your healing presence, that you would give us peace, that you would fix our eyes on you, that you would give us strength to get through the days. Sometimes that's what we need. God, it's hard sometimes. We just thank you this morning for who you are, your goodness, Lord, and just ask that you would help us to focus on you for this, this moment in our week that we take this rhythm of worship and we don't want to take it lightly. We don't want to just rush through it, God. So I just ask that your presence would just fill this room in a tangible way, that you would give us the strength to lay aside the distractions, the things that we brought in with us, things that are real, heavy, legitimate things just to set them aside for a moment, to just trust you that this moment, it's okay. You've got us in your hands, and we, and we want to thank you. We want to worship you for who you are, God. So that's why we're here. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's worship him this morning.
rejoice in the Lord this morning, whatever that looks like for you. Worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. Cause he opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. chapter 3, verse 9 through 17, just give a little context to a verse that we probably have heard many times. 
But hear these words because these are this is a prophetic word that speaks about you and me. We're included in this. It says, Then I will purify the lips of my peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. It's community. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove you, you arrogant boasters. (laughs) Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Amen. If God is rejoicing over us with singing, how much more should we be rejoicing and singing in God? Amen. Amen.
nothing worth more that will ever come close.
God is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Amen. Make my heart bleed. 
We're going to sing an old song for those of you who are here for Ash Wednesday service. We played a version of this song. We're going to sing the traditional version of this song, but just thinking about as we're going into the season of Lent and just making this declaration together as the body of Christ, why we're doing what we're doing, why we're trying to prepare our hearts for Easter, what all of this means, those of us who are fasting, and just that reminder and just reorienting. So let's really think about what we're saying as we sing this song. Amen. about you, but I will acknowledge that it can be really difficult to sing those words and just wonder if we have what it takes to follow without turning back. 
right? Like I, I am fully aware of all my weaknesses when I sing those words. I'm fully aware of the things that frustrate me and make me feel like it would be easier to just walk away, right? From all of, not the Lord, but just from pressing on and continuing on when it feels like no one is with you or when it feels like, oh, it's just impossible. It's, it feels too hard. It's too heavy. I just need to you know, figure out how to do this on my own. It, it just feels that way sometimes. I've lamented with someone this week. Someone was sharing with me that it just feels too hard and that sometimes it would be easier to just give up on, on any hope of, of the church um, following Jesus, truly following Jesus, the Jesus we read about in Scripture. And maybe not everybody's there, and that's okay if you're not. You don't have to feel that way if, if you're not struggling with that. But I think we should acknowledge that for many, it becomes difficult. It feels overwhelming and easier to just quit and, and go it alone. Um, but I know that that's not what God has in mind for us. I know that the Lord wants us to continue on together. And so this morning, I just felt in my heart just to pray for the strength to keep going when it's difficult, to keep going when it feels like you're alone, to keep going when it feels like we're not all headed in the same direction, right? Jesus is not going to give up on his bride. We are his beautiful bride, and I'm so thankful that he doesn't walk away. He doesn't give up. He doesn't look at his bride and say, oh, she's just so unpleasing to my eye. But Jesus says, oh, I love you. Keep going. I'm with you. And so that's my prayer this morning. And so would you just take a posture of prayer as we come together collectively as a body before the Lord? And would you just share the the cries of your heart with him this morning? God, we pause for a moment. And I just want to give us space to share what's on our heart with you, Lord. Here's our heart, God. In this moment of stillness and quiet, just share whatever it is. Don't hold back. Whatever it is that's on your heart, bring it before him. And then we take a moment. Holy Spirit, we sang the words. We welcome you into this place. And now we, we take a moment to pause and to say, speak to my heart. We won't grieve your presence by saying that you don't have room or space to speak into our hearts and to respond to what our cries are. And so, Holy Spirit, speak. Respond.
God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness and your mercy. These are things we're going to be talking about today, and I just want to just say thank you for giving us so much more than what we deserve. I've had the privilege of sitting with this word all week long. And God, I'm, I'm, I'm coming into this room today just so aware of how much I fall short. So aware of how like Adam and Eve I am. And yet so aware and reminded of your goodness despite all of it. God, I thank you for being a relentless God of mercy who doesn't give up and walk away, even when we do. I thank you, God, that you never hide from us, even though we hide ourselves from you. And God, if there's anyone here who feels like they're hiding this morning, God, I pray that they would feel seen. I pray that they would feel cared for and loved. We all have our own reasons for hiding. God, help us to step out of that hiding and come into a vulnerable place before you where we just receive your love and community. God, we know that each week as we gather... We know that there are different people within our community who are struggling with different things. A new week comes around, but God, we know that, that struggles um, and burdens and requests are always present. And so God, we pause and we lift those up before you. God, for those in our congregation who are sick today, we just pray for your healing and strengthening touch. God, would you draw near to those who, who long to be here in person and maybe they're watching online or, or they will later, but God, would you help them to know that they are loved and that you are with them right where they are. God, we, we pray for those who are hurting and who are seeking direction from you. God, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you make yourself known to them? God, I specifically pray for our sister Pam Dorney and, and, and a request that she shared about her brother John and, and he's not doing well and and she's with him today, and, and she just sees how much he's struggling. And Lord, it's, it's an overwhelming burden to watch her brother struggle and to not be in a healthy place. And, and God, he just has so many um, physical issues that are, that are weighing him down. And Lord, it's, it's weighing her down. And so God, we just pray that you would draw near to Pam and be with John, her brother, God, would you just give strength, peace, healing, rest?
God, I just continue to pray for your direction as the people of God, as this community, as we faithfully come before you each week, every day. God, we're just so hungry for for more of you. And God, we long to be renewed and revived. But we know that sometimes it takes hard work on our part to acknowledge what stands in the way of that. So God, help us to not be comfortable. God, help us to not be stagnant or stale, but God, help us to recognize what stands between us and and just a fresh outpouring of of your Holy Spirit that, that empowers us to go and to move and to be Help us, God, to have a vision of what it looks like to to reach a broken world around us. God, we are surrounded by by neighbors, by coworkers, acquaintances, friends who are, are hurting, who are walking through fire, God, and and Lord, help us to see them. Help us to, to care for them. Help us to love them like you've called us to love them. Help us to love them as you love them. God, would you just help us to be faithful to who you've called us to be. As we open up your word, God, give us the ears to hear. Would you give us the eyes to see? Help our hearts yield to your truth and and to your guidance and to your love. We look to you, God. We love you, Lord. We thank you again for your goodness and your faithfulness. And we pray all of this In the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we are gathered here today on uh, the first Sunday of Lent, and I guess I've been preparing for Lent for several weeks now, or at least it feels that way, and so it's kind of hard for me to believe that it's only the first Sunday of Lent, because I feel like I've been in the thick of, of preparing for Lent, and so... Uh, maybe that's because we gathered together on Ash Wednesday and as we officially entered into that season. But today is the first Sunday of the season of Lent, and I'm trying to be mindful to not overlap or repeat everything that was said on Wednesday, uh, but to acknowledge um, that Lent is a season, and you're going to get tired of hearing this, but then maybe it will start to stick, right? That Lent is a season of, of openness, that, that we are entering into a, a wilderness, if you will, into an openness, a, a time where we are dependent upon God. And hopefully we're doing the work to remove ourselves, to rid ourselves of the things that stand between us and a full awareness of, of who God is and who he's calling us to be and a lot of times what he's calling us to lay down. And so today we're talking about sin, and preaching on sin is tricky, I have found, because a lot of people have opinions about preaching on sin, 
and how you ought to do that. And, and they're very nice to share all of those opinions with the preacher, usually. And it happens everywhere, all the time. But I, I find that when, when it comes to preaching on sin, you kind of get one of two, sometimes a combo of things. And that is, you have those who don't think that, that sin is preached on enough. Right? And, and I hear that, but a lot of times it's certain kinds of sin that are not preached often enough. And usually it's the sin of, of what is perceived as here's what's plaguing our culture today. Here's the, the one thing that we need to continue to beat, right? Until we see a change. And so we don't preach on sin enough. And I hear a lot of people lament the pastors, preachers, they don't preach on sin enough. We, we need to confront the sins of our day. We need to, to face them head on. We need to call them out. And then on the other end, you have people who don't want to hear you talk about their sins, Right? You have those who are completely closed off to, to being confronted with their own sin. And, and they don't need you or want you to poke around in their business and, and casting judgment and, and addressing or acknowledging their sin. And then you have what I would call maybe a combination of the two. Those who want to hear about sin and they want you to preach about sin, but don't start talking about my sin. Don't, don't try to poke around in my heart and see the sins that I can easily cover up or hide or the sins that I don't talk about or acknowledge, right? Don't try to come poking around my heart and, and finding the sin that is crouching at my door, the sin that seeks to have me. It's a plank versus sawdust kind of situation. You follow me? It's a, I see your sin, but I'm totally missing my sin in the process. And as we said on Wednesday, if you weren't here on Wednesday, we acknowledge something that I think, especially if we're being honest, it's a room, again, full of, of longtime Christians for the most part, right? And so I feel like it's a good and healthy reminder for us to acknowledge that none of us is Christ, okay? Spoiler alert, I know, we, we address this on Wednesday None of us is Christ, and so none of us is, is sinless. None of us, we are all susceptible to sin. We are all susceptible to sin creeping in and, and hiding in our hearts and crouching at our door. None of us is free from that. We are free from the grips of sin, and we are free from the power of sin, but none of us is above sin, it's lurking for us, and it does seek to have us, and none of us can escape that. None of us have escaped that. And so because of this reality, if we agree none of us is Christ, and we have all sinned, we have all fallen short, you know that verse so well, if we are all in this vulnerable place where sin can be lurking and, and sin could be hiding and, and working in our lives in ways that are sneaky and, and not observant to everyone, then we must acknowledge that that sin needs to be confronted. We, we have to get to a place, and that's what's so beautiful about the season of Lent, is it's a, a, a rhythm where we are coming before God and we are saying, God, I know I'm not perfect. God, I know that, that sin seeks to have me and that there are, are crevices in my heart that, that are, are dirty and, and not looking like you. And, and God, I'm open and ready for you to show me what those are. And I'm willing to acknowledge that and to address that before my community and before you. 
The season of Lent is all about confronting and addressing the sin that, that is both in our hearts personally and collectively as the people of God. And so this passage then is appropriate. We're going to go back to the garden. This is an appropriate passage for the first Sunday of Lent where we're talking about sin because this is where sin entered into the story. This is where it all begins. And as we read through the story, I want you to just acknowledge that this is not just a story about Adam and Eve, that it is a story about Adam and Eve, but this is a story about all of us, that we can find all of us, ourselves, within this story. This is just an age-old story that we see play out over and over again, where humanity chooses our own way over the ways of God. That's what's happening here, and that includes all of us. And so I'm going to invite you to stand, if you are able to, as we read, kind of reading from two different places, first from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then moving right over to Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Moving on to chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat fruit or from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, this is the word of God, but it's a a hard one. It's a tragic story. And there are so many tragic things about the story of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Uh, and, And it should be acknowledged, too, that there are more theological implications and wonderings than we have time to explore today. Can we just say and acknowledge that, that this is one of those, one of the many passages in Scripture that scholars have so many things to say, and there are so many different ways that we can interpret this passage, and, and I acknowledge that before you today. But the one that we're going to kind of start with is, is seeing how abundant the provision of God was. I, I feel like that's something that a lot of times doesn't get a, a lot of attention, is that before tragedy takes place, before sin enters in and has Adam and Eve, there is this moment where where there is just goodness and fulfillment and, and we see that God has provided abundantly for Adam and Eve in this garden. There was a lot that we're gonna address that we didn't read today, but before where we picked up in chapter two, 
we read that God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Not just all kinds of trees, but trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. I just think it's a helpful reminder that the the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil wasn't some tree that lured them in because it was the only one of its kind. It certainly was different for a reason, as God says, but it doesn't mean that it was the only tree that looked good and pleasing, that there were other trees that God was not withholding this goodness from Adam and Eve. We read in chapter two that there's this river watering the garden that flows from Eden and it flows into all these different places and it tells us that this is a well-watered place, that there is abundant life and abundant goodness in this garden. God didn't just make um, something that was okay, but it was good and it was abundant we don't have really much reason to believe that, that Adam and Eve lacked anything, that anything they could need or want, God has given them in this garden. It's this beautiful gift. And out of all the abundance of, of trees and all that God has given them, we do read that, yes, there is this one tree that is off limits. There is one boundary in place. And God knows, we, we acknowledge that God knows the harm that will come if that boundary is crossed because he's all knowing, we are not. And we see in chapter three exactly what happens when we cross this one boundary that God has in place, right? And so we acknowledge first that God is good, that God gives abundantly, God provides for his people above and beyond what they could ever need or want, But that comes with this one boundary. And so Adam and Eve, we see are faced with this choice, this this first choice of do I trust in God's goodness and God's abundance and God's faithfulness? Or do I call that into question because of this one boundary that God has highlighted? I have to believe that, I know we're not given just a whole lot, but I have to believe that there was a relationship there that existed between God and Adam and Eve. I have to believe that Adam and Eve knew God's character, that Adam and Eve knew and tasted and saw God's goodness, right? And his faithfulness and his love for them. I have to believe that they were walking in community. I mean, that to me is clear, but there was a relationship there. I don't see this as God makes Adam and Eve, bam, and then all of a sudden, you can't do this thing because I'm God and I said so. I believe that there was understanding and a relationship there that that Adam and Eve knew God and they saw his goodness and his faithfulness, which makes challenging that even more difficult, right? Because I'm, I'm questioning, even though I know God is good and I know he is faithful and I know that he's given me all that I need, all of that comes into question when the serpent enters into the picture, Again, I acknowledge there's a lot we could say about the serpent, what it is, what it isn't, but we're going to bypass that today. And this serpent, it tempts Adam and Eve to fix their eyes on the one thing out of everything that God has given them, out of all of God's goodness and faithfulness, the serpent is, is fixing Adam and Eve's eyes on that one thing that they can't have. The one thing that God says, this is not going to be good and helpful for you. And all of God's goodness and faithfulness comes into question because of this one boundary. I like how Walter Brueggemann 
He helps us to to see that the serpent transforms the boundary God has established, right? It was one thing, and the, the serpent has kind of changed that to look like something else. He says that this boundary is meant for the good of humanity. It's good. This boundary is a good thing. But the serpent transforms it in their minds as as it's no longer something that's good for them, but it's something good that God is keeping from them, right? Even though that's not what it was, it was something that was good for them. And he is, is changing that. It's transforming. And now it's something good that God is keeping from you. And that's just not right, And so they're facing this temptation, this desire. We we talked about temptation last week with Jesus. We acknowledged Jesus' humanity and how if he was fully human, fully God, but if he was fully human, then he had desires. He he struggled to, to wrestle with the desires of the flesh when he was hungry, when he was tired, when he was feeling weak. And so we see again, there's this wrestling with this temptation. Adam and Eve are facing this human desire. Well, I just, I I would like to know more. I would love to have what this tree can offer me. And so they're facing this desire. The question is, what will they do with it? And we already know the answer. We've already read the answer. We see, tragically, that rather than embracing their roles as caretakers of creation, They become subject to creation, and they choose not to trust that God wants what is best for them. And then it all unravels from there, doesn't it? It's messy, and things only get messier from there. The moment that they, that they go against God, that they choose to, to go against God and deviate from what God has told them, what God has instructed them, they freak out. Suddenly, they are filled with this fear and this frightening new awareness of things, right? And that's quickly met with shame. Shame just immediately washes over them. And it's all of a sudden, they are filled with shame and they need to hide. And that's one of the most tragic things about this story is that all of a sudden, you were my enemy. You were out to get me. You were no longer my partner, my, my faithful partner that God has given me, but they have to hide from each other. They have to hide from God because now it, they're filled with this shame. And then that shame quickly turns into blame, doesn't it? We see that that not only does shame overwhelm Adam and Eve, but all of a sudden I have to blame someone for this shame that I am now feeling. We see that, that each seeks to blame the other person. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. And I just want to take this moment to, to plug in a little Wesleyan theology here that contrary to popular opinion, Adam and Eve are equally responsible for what has happened. Right? They are on, we as Wesleyans believe that Adam and Eve were created equally. They are on level playing field. I know, you appreciate that, don't you? Some of you do, some of you don't. That's okay. Just want you to know that is who we are as Wesleyans. They are equal here. One is not over the other. There is no hierarchy here. And so both are equally responsible. Both knew clearly what God had lined out for them, what God had told them, and they both chose to deviate from that. And so they are both responsible, they are both filled with shame, and they both want someone else to blame. And one of the questions that I think tortures us as we read this passage, 
We torture ourselves with this question of what would life be like if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned? Don't we? We don't we torture ourselves with that question? We're like, oh, what would we imagine what life would be like if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned as if we were, you know, gonna do anything different, as if we are above them in some way? What how wonderful might life be if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned? And I don't think that's a bad question. I think that's a normal, natural question that we have. But I also wonder about another question. I wonder what would have happened if Adam and Eve didn't hide in their disobedience. I think that's a question we ought to sit with for a minute. I think, hear me, okay? I think the sin was a problem. Doing What God specifically said not to do, that's a problem. That is where this all began, okay? I'm not changing that. I'm not not saying that that wasn't the sin. I just wonder, would things have been different if in that moment they went to God? What if they didn't hide from God in in that moment? What if they ran toward God in that moment and not away from him? Sometimes I wonder, as I was thinking about this this week, I wonder... Is it possible? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not suggesting. I'm just wondering. But is it possible that God was more grieved by their running and their hiding than the thing itself? I don't know. I wonder. Would the consequences have been the same if, if Adam and Eve would have come to God open, ready to be responsible and held accountable and acknowledge the wrongdoing? What if part of the sin here has to do with not just the thing, but the hiding and the failure to acknowledge and to take accountability and responsibility for what was done? I'm just wondering with you. I say it again. This is not just Adam and Eve's story. This is our story. This is humanity's story We are like Adam and Eve, and and we can't put ourselves in a place above them or, or imagine that we would have done anything different because, friends, we are Adam and Eve. We do these same things, don't we? How often do we look at all that God has given us, all that God has provided us, all of God's goodness and faithfulness we've tasted and seen only to focus on what isn't there? And all of a sudden, we question God, and, and I think God can handle it. I'm not saying that, that you should ignore those questions or that God can't handle it, but, but I do wrestle with the fact that, that we have seen and experienced God's goodness and faithfulness, and yet in a moment where we don't see something that we think we should see and we don't have something we think we should have, so easily all of that goes into question. Even though we've tasted and seen and experienced God's goodness How easy is it for us to question all of that when faced with something that we don't have, that that isn't there? How often do we conform to the image that we have in mind for ourselves, believing the lie that it's going to be better than what God has in mind for us? How often do we take issues with the boundaries rather than trust in a God who is good, who loves us, who is all-knowing and all-understanding? And I'm just going to be really honest with you, because at this point you don't expect anything less, hopefully, but this is where I was tempted to personalize this message for a 
for a few people. I don't even know who it would be, right? This is the point where I feel like tempted to, to say like, here's some sins that we, here's how we do some of these things personally, right? And, and I think at this point, this is where we want to hear, all right, call out the sin, call it out. We're waiting. Call out that one sin or those two or three sins that are plaguing all of us today. We can see it so clearly. And yet I was so hesitant to do that. I didn't, I sat with that, I wrestled, I I even asked the Lord, Lord, is there something I need to call out? Because sometimes there is. Sometimes we do need to call it out and address it, personally and collectively. But the thing that I kept coming back to is that this story is a reminder that it's more than just naming a few sins that we see in other people. Because let's be honest, that's what we're after those sins that we see in them, in the other, right? Those who are not like us, those who don't live like us, look like us, act like us, that's the sin we want to acknowledge and address. Don't you dare acknowledge and address the sin that might be lurking in my heart. Don't try to do that. But this is a reminder that it's more than just naming a few sins that we see and quickly pointing them out. But this is a reminder that all of us, because we aren't Christ, all of us so easily deceive ourselves and we spin these illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. We all do that. That's thanks to Tim Mackey and the Bible Project who helped to really define what we're talking about with sin. That yes, sin does include things that we do sometimes, right? Personally, sin is in my heart and I have to acknowledge that. I have to repent of of whatever it is that is there, but, but it's also more than that. For a room full of Christians, I think it's a timely reminder to say that, that sin is a failure to love God in any way and to fail to love others in any way, that that also is sin. That's kind of a big one. If you think about what's the most important thing, the most important commands, Anytime we fail to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and anytime we fail to love someone else, to love our brother and sister, friends, that is also sin. I mean, take Adam and Eve. Their failure to fully love and trust God causes this devastating breakdown in relationship, doesn't it? The moment they deviate and and go against what God has has told them to do, there's this massive, devastating breakdown in their relationship. It affects each other. It affects both of them. There's now this breakdown between them and God. And then in the very next story, the very next story, Cain and Abel, we see again that, that, that Cain's sin is not only, it begins with, he's failing to trust God, to listen to God. I mean, God is saying, sin is at your door. It wants to have you. It's like a beast. It's ready to, to attack you and, and take all of you. Watch out. And so the sin was first not listening to God and taking that seriously. And then because he doesn't do that, he fails to love his brother because that's kind of implied when you kill him, Right? And so we see this immediately, that that it's so much more than just naming a few culturally relevant sins, but this is about failing to love God with all of us and loving others as a result. It's a reminder that we all have moments when we idolize our wisdom and our knowledge over God's. 
I decide what's good for me and what's not. I decide what's good and what's not and possibly consequentially for others. Others are affected as well. And what's more, what's, what's more is that things only get worse when we run and hide from God, pretending that these things aren't there. When we run and hide from God, refusing to accept responsibility and accountability, trusting in our own knowledge rather than God, who is so worthy of our trust. And so that brings us again to the reason why we're here, to for the reason that the season of Lent is so, I think, important. Because it's a time to come out from behind the bushes, right? It's a time to, to come out before God fully open and honest, saying, here I am, Lord, and I know, I know I have fallen short. I know that there are some things that I have done. And then at the same time, there are sins because there are things that I haven't done. Sins of inaction, failing to do what you've called me to do, failing to be who you've called us to be. The season of Lent is a time where we intentionally stop pointing the finger at other people, right? We stop shifting the blame to other people and saying, well, if they would just do this, or if they would just get that taken care of, if he would just stop treating me that way, then I could treat him better and stop shifting the blame and open up ourselves before God and start with what's in here. Repenting of what lurks and hides in here and sometimes what has us. Lent is a time to come out from hiding, to unburden ourselves with the shame that we have crafted for ourselves. And God, when we do that, as seen in this story with Adam and Eve, God seeks again to provide abundantly, things that he can't provide when we're hiding in our shame behind a bush, right? And so the challenge is for us to stop running in the wrong direction, to stop hiding behind our sin and our shame, and to collectively come before God, open, humbly asking for his grace and his mercy. This season is about running toward the one who is already running towards us. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. And as they do, I want to share with you the most beautiful part of this tragic story. I told you before, I said that before, and there's so many things that we didn't even acknowledge, but this is a tragic story. And yet the most beautiful part of this whole story to me is found in chapter three, verse 21. This is after God (laughs) acknowledges that something is wrong, right? Where are you? He's looking for his beloved. He's looking for for those who he he loves and who he longs to spend time with and and be in authentic community and relationship with. He can't find them. They're hiding. Where are you? What's happened? And then the blame shifting and then the shame. They're hiding. And there's this beautiful moment after, you know, there's, there's here's, because you have done this, now here's your reality, right? And we ought to look at that just a little bit of, of, of healthy direction for you. Those aren't so much as curses for us as they are like, here's what your reality is going to be now. Here's what you've chosen. Here's the things that you're going to wrestle with and struggle with because of what you have chosen. After all of that, in chapter three, verse 21, we read that the Lord God, the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, 
made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Friends, if that doesn't overwhelm you, like you need to read it again and think about what's just happened. That as the result of their sin and their choice, right? Adam and Eve chose this. And then after their messy attempt to clothe themselves and to cover up their shame, God takes this as an opportunity to show them just how much he loves them. And he finds a better situation for them. And and God, so nurturing and, and lovingly, crafts together clothes for them to wear that'll be more comfortable. Uh, Joseph Colson says that this is God's handiwork on their behalf. And it's another grace note in a narrative filled with grace. As, as we see this divine response to human rebellion. Not only were these tunics of animal skins more durable and more comfortable than were aprons of leaves, but they also represented God's covering of the guilt and the shame of their transgression and its real hope for a future in which God still cares for them. I love that so much, and I think it should humble us in some way to know that even though we choose time and time again to deviate and to make our own decisions based on our own wisdom and knowledge, that God never ceases, God never stops coming back to us and saying, here, look what I've done for you. And it's beautiful, and it's grace. And so perhaps this morning, some of you today, in addition to having me remind you of your sin, and even though I didn't say specifically what it was, but just acknowledging us acknowledging again our sin and what, what hides and lurks in our hearts, but maybe some of you also just needed this reminder today of God's goodness and faithfulness that you've seen throughout your life. And then just before getting up here, I also felt prompted to remind some of you that God cares about those little things that you feel like are too small for him to care about. Because clothes, really? Like, let them suffer in their own embarrassing shame. (laughs) That's kind of our response, right? But God says, no, I'm gonna meet them with more grace. It's small, really, in the grand scheme of things, but it's not so small when we read about it. And so this morning is a reminder that God sees and cares for those little things that that might feel small to you. And so, God, we come before you in this moment. And, God, we, we allow ourselves to be reminded of your goodness, of your provision, of your faithfulness. And God, we acknowledge that so often we, we mess things up. We change the narrative and we deviate. But God, we are reminded that you always meet us with loving kindness and with mercy. And we celebrate and remember your goodness and faithfulness in our lives. We open ourselves up before you again. Amen. You can stand with us as we sing if you're able. Of course, you're always welcome to kneel at your seat or at the altar, whatever.
is comfortable for you, whatever is compelling for you in this response time of worship.
Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, before I dismiss you this morning, I just want to remind you to stop and grab those prayer prompts for the week, and let's be lifting up prayer for our tradition, for our denomination, for our leaders, and for all of us. So that's important. I just want to remind you of that. But I also want to charge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to go in the peace and grace of our Lord and Savior who loves you, who wants to walk hand in hand with you. I pray that you would go and be open and vulnerable before the Lord, before one another, and watch how God is going to transform things around you as a result of that. May you know that you are loved. You are deeply loved and cherished by your heavenly Father. Go in that peace. You are dismissed. Have a great day.